It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Nice to be in Washington where the buck stops here. Way to go. And then it's handed out to AIG and many other people. Now. Robin Williams is a comedy legend, as is George Carlin. There are words that you can say, no problem. Topography. No one has ever gone to jail for screaming topography. But there are some words that you can go to jail for. You can listen to their comedy albums on streaming services. But the estates of Williams and Carlin say that Pandora Media is streaming their comedy albums without getting a license from them. Their estates, along with comedians Andrew Dice Clay, Ron White, Bill Engville, and Nick DiPaolo, are suing Pandora for not paying them as the authors of the jokes in the way that songwriters are paid royalties for writing lyrics. It will be the first time a court will hear a case over licensing spoken word comedy. To help us understand the novel questions here, my guest is intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Catton Rosenman. Terry, the licensing structure gets very complicated. Can you give us an overview? So copyright law with respect to recorded sound is currently very complex because of a complicated history. There was literally no provision for copyright in recorded sound over the course of the 20th century. In 1972, Congress finally got around to fixing the 1909 Copyright Act by providing copyrights for recorded sound going forward in time. But because recorded sound came to the copyright game so late in the day, It has now a complicated licensing mechanism. And this in part has to do with history, but also in part with the nature of music. You start from the beginning. Somebody writes notes, the melody to a song. Someone, perhaps the same person, perhaps someone else, writes lyrics to go with that. That combination of musical notes and lyrics is often published as sheet music. That sheet music then can be played live to audiences, for example, in a ballroom by an orchestra, or it can be recorded onto an LP, a CD, any other digital medium, and listened to at a person's convenience. So you have these 
multiplicity of ways that music can be used. And that requires several different types of licenses because there are several different copyright components. The first one is known as a mechanical license. Mechanical license has to do with the copyright in the underlying composition, the musical notes and the lyrics. So if I am a band and I want to cover the song of, say, Led Zeppelin, which is copyrighted, I would have to obtain a mechanical license in order to use their composition. If, however, as part of perhaps a hip-hop piece, I want to sample a few sections from a Led Zeppelin song and then add to those samples my own composition, what I need is known as a master license, which is a right to use the actual recording of the music that Led Zeppelin did. To make things even more complicated, if you're a radio station, you need to obtain a public performance license, which is a third type of license for musical recordings. And after the Music Modernization Act, we now have digital streaming services, and they have to get a completely separate license provided under the MMA, which is referred to as a blanket license. Where does the spoken word fit into this? The copyright regime I just described grew up in a musical context, not in the context of spoken words. And yet, what is a comedy recording? It is spoken words. And we now have a culture in which, thanks to streaming services and podcasts, the marketplace for the spoken word is surging. And people who have copyrights in the spoken word, who previously never even gave much of a thought to enforcing the copyrights, now see that we have this new marketplace in which the spoken word is very valuable and see an opportunity to make money off of that by now, for the first time, enforcing their copyrights. And at the cutting edge of this are the comedians and these lawsuits that have been filed by them in California. Let me ask you this, just on a pure copyright kind of analysis. Is a joke a comedian tells the same as a song that someone writes? Because you often hear people say, oh, he stole my joke. You know, you tell the same joke in a different way. Is it like lyrics or is it unlike lyrics? So in theory, it is like lyrics. There's the story of Bob Hope, one of the most prolific joke writers of all time, who kept all of his jokes on three by five index cards and had this massive catalog and collection of jokes. And why did he do that? Because copyright only attaches when an original work is fixed in a tangible medium. Those are the words from the Copyright Act, fixed in a tangible medium. If I simply get up at a comedy club and do an improvised routine, I am not fixing those jokes in a tangible medium by, for example, the classic way of doing that, writing them down. Now, the interesting thing about these recordings of comedians performing is that that act of recording their performance fixes the jokes in a tangible medium where they can be heard for all time. And therefore, there is at least a copyright in those recordings, whether or not there's a separate copyright in the jokes, the way there would be a separate copyright for the sheet music, is a question that is purely factual and depends on how did the comedian take care of their joke creation. Were they like Bob Hope? Were they writing down their jokes and saving them and cataloging them over time? Or were they more like, you know, the comedy improv clubs where people get up and just do bits? And nobody's recording it. Nobody's writing it down even afterwards. So then, theoretically speaking, the streaming services would have to get two licenses. See, in theory, what they should have to do is obtain both a master license 
from whoever owns the, the master recording, and they should also, in theory, obtain a mechanical license from whoever owns the copyright on the joke, which is why your last question about do they have copyrights in the jokes is a good question. Pandora says in filings that it streams comedy without a license for the underlying work because that's an industry-wide custom. What would Pandora's defense be? This defense that it's an industry-wide custom, that doesn't sound very strong to me. Pandora has, to the extent they've said anything about this in SEC filings, is that there's no requirement to take a license in streaming these comedic recordings because that's the industry-wide custom. That, however, is not a cognizable defense to copyright infringement. If there is a copyright and that work that is copyrighted is used without authorization of the copyright owner, that is at least a prima facie case of copyright infringement. The other defense you have heard mentioned on behalf of the streaming services is that it would be too hard to determine who owns the copyright and to track them down and to pay them a few cents every time they stream the copyrighted work. Again, that's not a cognizable defense to copyright infringement. So it's frankly very hard to know how the streaming services such as Pandora intend to defend against this unless it's their intent to simply claim that there's no copyright in the underlying joke in the first place. As you said, with music, which has evolved, there are organizations that you go to to get the license, right? So it's, it's easy. What Pandora is saying is there's no organization we can go to. That is absolutely right. And again, it's a, it's a problem that is a legacy of the law in this area being developed in the context of music. So uh, a ra- an FM radio station that, that wants to play uh, recorded music um, can go to either BMI or a- ASCAP and obtain a public performance license with a set fee schedule. And they pay to those organizations. And it's in those organizations who have the burden of figuring out, well, who actually owned the copyright that song mm-hmm. and, 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 and figuring out how to get money to them. If, if you want a, a mechanical license, you go to uh, the publishing companies. Uh, and that, that area is dominated by three companies, the Harry Fox Agency, Music Reports Inc., and the Mechanical Licensing Collective. And again, you simply pay the money to them, and it's up to them to figure out who owns the copyright, how much they get paid, when do they get paid. Um, Similarly, with digital streaming of music under the uh, Music Modernization Act, this mechanical licensing collective, which the MMA established by law, worries about collecting the fees from anybody wanting a license to stream music and distributing it. But the MMA did not provide for the handling of spoken word recordings. And so that's where we have this conundrum now is that the various agencies that have been set up over the years to uh, enforce copyrights, to collect licensing fees, none of them were directed at taking care of the spoken word as recorded. And that's why Pandora, with a certain sense of justification, says, how do we do this? We want to comply with copyright law, but how do we go about doing this? Or do we have to search out every comedian and figure out how much that joke was worth versus this joke and then how to get it to them? And if they passed away, where is their estate? Who's the trustee of the state? How do we get the money to them? It is a very serious problem that at the end of the day has to be addressed through legislation, just as the, the streaming of music was addressed through legislation, the Music Modernization Act. Now, last December, 
Spotify just pulled the content of hundreds of comedians when it couldn't reach a licensing deal with Spoken Giants, one of the first rights organizations for comedians. So it seems like they didn't think it was worthwhile. That is another argument you're hearing from the streaming services, that there are a handful of comedians who get regular play, and then there are lots of comedian recordings that are in their catalog that are available to play but never get played. And as I understand it, is that the problem was Spotify refused to pay based on the volume of works in their collection available to be streamed. They instead just wanted to pay for the ones that actually got streamed, which is a much smaller number. And that's where the negotiations broke down. And this same thing happened repeatedly over the years with respect to public performance licenses for music and mechanical licenses for music and master licenses for recordings. And the solution has always been compromised, often forced upon the various interests here by Congress or by the Department of Justice or the Federal Trade Commission, looking at it from an antitrust perspective. Just looking at the lawsuit by itself, does it seem that the comedians have a good case against Pandora? They certainly have a good prima facie copyright infringement case. They've alleged, and I assume can prove up, that they own copyrights in the works that have been streamed online. I assume that they can prove that the works were streamed online. That ought to be relatively easy to do. And then it's up to the defendant, Pandora, to come up with some defense, which I don't know what it would be. I may be missing something, but I don't see any of the normal viable defenses. I don't see a de minimis use defense because they're playing the entire jokes. I don't see a fair use defense. And keep in mind, June, this is not like some of the music cases we've talked about in the past, where somebody says, ah, you got an idea from my song. You took bits and pieces of my song. You built upon that. This is what is known as literal copyright infringement. It's like taking a book and Xeroxing the pages. It's not an attempt to create a transformative new work. You're simply giving away somebody else's actual work verbatim. And that's a much easier case to make than the music cases we've seen in the past against Ed Sheeran, against Led Zeppelin, the Blurred Lines case, where that were based on substantial similarity as opposed to literal copying, which is what's going on here. So it's a much easier case for a plaintiff to make out, a copyright owner to make out, and I think they've done a good job of it here. And the really important thing to focus on is that they are claiming statutory damages. Now, statutory damages are sort of a unique fixture of the Copyright Act of 1976. It says that if a copyright owner has trouble proving up their actual losses, they can always get a statutory royalty. And the statute sets that so that for the sort of willful infringement that's alleged here, you can get up to $150,000 per work infringed. So that's not how many times it was streamed. It's for each work, $150,000. But there are 10 or 12 works, you're quickly into millions of dollars. And indeed, Robin Williams' estate alone is suing for about $4.1 million of statutory damages. And you can imagine if each of these various comedians' lawsuits is in that neighborhood, how quickly that number can get up there into serious money. So there's a lot at stake here, and it should justifiably cause Pandora some concern. Does this seem like it's a suit that will be settled, or it's too big to be settled? So we've seen this type of lawsuit never before. This is the first of a kind, and that makes it difficult to predict 
the course of the litigation based on similar past lawsuits. The closest thing I can analogize to was the lawsuits brought by the Turtles, uh, 1960 pop music group, seeking to obtain license fees for the playing on radio stations and digital streaming of their songs that predated the 1972 amendments to the Copyright Act. So this is for songs that uh, did not have copyright protection, but they alleged had various types of common law protection that were infringed. Again, those were novel, first-of-kind lawsuits, um, and they had to be litigated all the, way, all the way up to appeal in order to get a sense of how the courts were coming out. And they, they went up in several state courts and several, several federal courts, and it wasn't until the, all the parties involved had a sense of where the courts would ultimately come out that they had enough information to settle the case and come up with you know, determine what the risks and rewards were and agree to compromise. I think you're likely to see something similar here. I think that the industry needs more guidance on what the risk is to them. And so I think they're liable not to try to quickly settle this, but to try to push it and see where the liability is. Pandora, in particular, has been predicting something like this for years in their SEC filings, saying that this is a risk that's out there. And so I think they're going to need some guidance from the courts, perhaps even going up to the appellate courts to see what the thinking there is on, on the law in this area. And I think on the other side of the ledger, I think the, the comedians and their lawyers are going to want to get a lot more information as to the legal rights and liabilities before they can make an informed decision as to where to settle. And so my gut is that you're going to see this litigation move along for several years before you get to a point where the parties feel comfortable that they are fully informed and can make an intelligent and reasonable settlement. Thanks for your insights, Terry, as always. That's Terrence Ross of Catton Rosenman. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. It was a whirlwind 17 days for Twitter, starting with Elon Musk announcing he'd become Twitter's largest shareholder, to his offers to buy the whole company, to the board launching a poison pill, 
to Musk's cryptic "Love Me Tender" tweets, and finally, at least so far, to Musk making a "Show Me the Money" move. But even with funding secured, taking over Twitter will not be so easy, as Musk himself acknowledged during a TED interview last week. I do think this will be somewhat painful, and I'm not sure that I will actually be able to to acquire it. I mean, I could technically afford it.、Um, I, I have that. I have that.、Um, Joining me to make some sense of these Musk moves is Alan Capen, a partner at Farrell Fritz. Even though Musk is the richest man in the world, the question was still whether he had enough to buy Twitter without selling part of his stake in one of his prized companies to get it. It appears that he does now, with the commitments that he's received. He's received commitments from a bunch of banks. Thirteen billion dollars from Morgan Stanley and a group of banks, an additional twelve point five billion dollars in margin loans that are secured by his Tesla stock, and he himself has provided an equity commitment letter for twenty-one billion dollars. So, if you add it all up, you get forty-six point five billion dollars. It appears that he does have enough to. Fund the offer he has made for Twitter. Now, that's not to say that the board will accept his offer. If the board does not accept his offer, he is at least threatening right now to go hostile, to go straight to the stockholders and offer to purchase their shares directly. The Twitter board made a defensive move by launching a poison pill. Explain what that does. Twitter adopted an anti-takeover defense in the form of a shareholder rights plan, which is commonly referred to as a poison pill. What Twitter did was it distributed rights to all of its shareholders that allows them to buy shares. And if someone crosses a threshold trigger, in this case 15% ownership, without board approval, all the shareholders, other than the person who crossed the 15% threshold, get to buy shares at a steep discount. It results in massive dilution to the acquiring person. So, in Twitter's poison pill, the rights allow shareholders to purchase shares at an exercise price of $210. On the payment of that exercise price, a shareholder would receive a number of shares equal to twice that exercise price, and that would result in massive dilution to the acquiring person because he doesn't get to buy shares at that discount. So, the effect of all this is that it prevents. Elon Musk from exceeding that 15% threshold, or even announcing a tender offer to acquire shares that would result in him exceeding that threshold without board approval, and that's the key thing. So the practical impact of all this is that all roads now lead through the Twitter board. Are poison pills very effective? In the history of poison pills, and this stretches back about 40 years, I'm only aware of one. Documented case in which someone deliberately crossed the threshold without board approval. So it does serve as a deterrent. The poison pill has no impact on a friendly negotiated takeover, including by Musk, because the board retains the ability to amend the plan and exempt Musk or another acquirer. It just gives the board more leverage, gives it more time to consider an offer. What does it tell you that Musk is considering launching a tender offer? So it's unclear why he continues to threaten a tender offer. Presumably, in order for him to proceed with that tender offer, he would have to convince the board to redeem the poison pill. If he can't convince them, he may try to unseat them. 
And he himself cannot nominate any directors for the upcoming election because he's missed the notice deadline. But what he could do is engage in a campaign, really a proxy contest. He will compete for stockholders' proxies in order to convince enough of them, not necessarily to vote for his select directors, because again, he's missed the deadline for nominating, but he might convince enough shareholders to withhold their votes from the board's slate of directors. And what's interesting about Twitter is that Twitter has what's called majority voting. In other words, a director doesn't get elected unless he gets a majority of votes. The general rule that exists for most companies is a plurality voting rule, which means that all you need is more votes than any other guy. Tell me how a tender offer would work if he decides to do it. So a tender offer is just an offer directly to the stockholders, and he would have to disclose material information about his offer to the shareholders. There are rules that he would have to follow in order for the tender offer not to be deemed coercive. But the shareholders would be allowed to make their own decisions about whether to sell their shares that have been offered for tender. The downside of a tender offer as opposed to a negotiated acquisition with the company is that you're not guaranteed to get the entire company. So you may get a whole bunch of shareholders who tender their shares. You may end up with a majority of the company, but you are likely not to end up with 100% of the companies. It also takes longer than a negotiated acquisition with the company. And now with the poison pill, the announcement of a tender offer in and of itself would trigger the pill. So that's an avenue that has seemingly been cut off from Elon Musk. Does his latest filing with the SEC and securing financing show Musk is really serious about acquiring Twitter? He's not just trolling. Well, I have to say that before this, I was not quite convinced that he was serious about acquiring Twitter. I thought that he, you know, sort of can go either way. If it worked out, great. If not, he could exert pressure from the sidelines to do what we know he wants to do, which is to bring about certain changes in the product and the operations of Twitter. This filing shows that he's a little bit more serious than it appeared before, because now he's got the funding. And he also said in the SEC filing that another condition that he had expressed before is no longer a condition to his offer, which is business due diligence. So two major conditions have now gone away. One is the financing condition, and the other one is the business due diligence condition. So the offer looks a lot more credible, and he's got some very serious banks backing him up. That's not to say that the Twitter board will roll over and accept his offer. And what are the options for the Twitter board? Three things can happen now from the Twitter board side of things. One is that they could accept the offer. Number two is that they can make a decision to remain independent by asserting that stockholders in the company are better off by remaining independent and pursuing the corporate strategy. Or three, they can find what's called a white knight, another company that they feel is more friendly to the board and is more in line with the corporate strategy. Thanks, Alon. That's Alon Capen of Farrell Fritz. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. 
And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus.